Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Thank you all very much for coming today. Um, so, yeah, my name is Casey. Welcome to Insight LA uh, Long Beach Sunday Sit. Well, yesterday we had a wonderful little half-day retreat, um, and several people came today, too, which is pretty awesome. (laughs) I said at the end, this doesn't get you out of Sunday sit. (laughs) And a surprise, so many of them came back today. So really wonderful, and we all mentioned yesterday just how blessed we felt to, um, for the community, I know we say it all the time, but coming in here is such a blessing, such a gift. Uh, Many people come to Sunday sit, and they've never meditated for half an hour, right? But we see if we meditate on our own for half an hour, it's sometimes very difficult for even half an hour. It's sometimes very difficult. And it might be difficult here, but we're held by the group, right? Um, So, yeah, it's such a gift. And then yesterday, you know, we usually don't wake up on a Saturday morning and then just meditate for four or five hours, right? (laughs) Usually not. But if we're held in a group, then we can do it. So it's just really phenomenal. Um, We might be at capacity, I don't know. (laughs) But we didn't overfill, so that's good. Um, Yeah, so it was really, really precious. So today, um, we're going to talk about... I think I put, uh, I announced on Facebook, I thought it was um, Foundations of Bliss, and I was going to talk about the preliminary practices of, um, of Tibetan Buddhism, also called Nundro practices. Uh, we put on Facebook, um, I said, what do people want to hear about at Sunday Sit Talk? And many people wrote back, and Margaret was asking about prostrations. And I thought, well, you can't talk about prostrations unless you talk about the entire path. Um, the entire path is in a prostration. And so, because I'm very unwise most of the time, I, I bought off more than I could chew. We're going to talk about the entire path. Um, but the, the reason is, I wanted to do this anyway because we get, um, I ask myself this question so many times, and the question is, what should I be doing? What should I do? And then when we hold retreats, especially longer retreats, it's really amazing. The, probably the most common question that we get asked is that I don't know what to do. Should I be on my, focused on my breath? Should I be focused on loving kindness practice? Um, should I be focusing on the breath at the nose, the breath at the tummy? Like, what should I do? And then here, we have access to amazing teachings. When I say here in California, right? in America. All these teachings from the East, the West, and then in Buddhism, like I'm more from the Tibetan school, but then there's Hinayana, Mahayana, you get the Vajrayana. So we're just always um, looking about, uh, looking to see where's the actual progression of our path. Is there a beginning, a middle, and an end? Where's the path? A lot of our paths are more eclectic. Right? So I want to talk about the progression of just one path. This is, I'm just going to talk about a, a specific path in Tibetan Buddhism, like how it actually unfolds. Right? Not to convince you to do this path, but to see <laughs> what it looks like and the elements that are in this path. So you could pull and you could draw from your resources. Right? And the first thing is that, is it good to have a path? You know, to, to we, we look at, if we want to learn uh, engineering, you go to school to be an engineer, you hang out with engineers, and you learn how to be an engineer. Same thing with our spiritual path. If you want to reach a, a certain uh, discovery within yourself, it might be a good idea to hang out with people that have made that own discovery themselves. And to look at exactly how they did it, step by step. 
And then you can use discernment, saying, yeah, this is what I want to do. Just like picking like a major in, in school, right? This is how I want to go about it, right? So this is good. So a lot of this isn't exactly chronological, but I'll go over it in the best way that I can. So the first thing that we want to do is I call plotting the course. Like, where do we want to go, right? And in Buddhism, this is taking refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. This part is basically saying, okay, I know that things outside of myself cause suffering, right? And that I'm going to, I'm going to take refuge within myself. So this is the first noble truth, right? So Buddha said, life is external existence, suffering exists. So out there, everything out there, it's impermanent, even if there is some happiness that is drawn from it, it's impermanent, not lasting. Where can we find sustainable happiness? So we get to the point, say, okay, it's not, it's definitely not out there. So we take refuge really within aspects of ourselves. The Buddha is the, our own Buddha nature. So we're taking refuge in our own Buddha nature. And taking refuge, this is just as the word says, like if you're in a storm and you need to seek refuge in something stable and safe, right? Seeking refuge outside of ourselves is not stable or safe. Taking refuge in our own essence, very stable, very safe. Taking refuge in the Dharma, this is the teachings that we can rely on, right? And all phenomena and all beings in our actual essence, that's the Dharma. And then the Sangha, this is the community, which again, all of us are the Sangha, all connected. So this is the first piece. So if you, let's say on the path, the first thing you do is take your, your refuge vows. I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. May I practice generosity and the other perfections until I attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Right. So this would be a refuge vow. And then if you're in the Mahayana tradition, which is the tradition that we're talking about here, you'd also take your bodhisattva vows. There's um, several different vows you take, but it's basically, may I attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. This is why I'm doing it, for the benefit of all beings. So you take those vows. That sets the course. That's what we're doing, right? The next piece is that we need motivation. Without motivation, throw everything out. I always say, if I could just teach this piece, this is probably all I, if everyone kept showing up, we would just do this the whole time. Because without this practice of motivation, we're just not going to do anything else. We could have the highest practices, but we won't do them. We live in Southern California. It's awesome here. I mean, it's amazing <laughs> that we're all sitting in a room on a beautiful Sunday morning when looking this way, when the beach and, I mean, it's just so lively and so beautiful out there, right? But this also denotes, this also points to suffering, that we really, really are fed up, that we know that, that there is suffering outside of ourselves, and maybe we've grasped onto it again and again, and it slipped through our fingers, Right, so we know, okay, I have to do this, right? So for motivation, in this tradition, we, we look at the four thoughts that turn the mind towards Dharma. So this is the four thoughts that turn the mind back into refuge, to remind my, ourselves we need to take refuge in here, right? And the first, and these are whole teachings in and of themselves, obviously I'm going through these very quickly, but how precious, our precious human life that this is so precious. We're alive. We've taken a birth where we could be conscious of consciousness. So having a human birth is 
phenomenal. We've met the Dharma. We've met teachings and teachers. And Dharma is very vast. It could be Christianity is Dharma. Right? We've met the Dharma. We've met teachers that could disseminate the Dharma. Amazing. We have motivation. Incredible. Like we're all here. This is phenomenal. We have motivation to actually practice. Right? Then we have all the conditions. We've all probably been fed today. We're in this beautiful cave. Our meditation caves at home have like refrigeration systems and incredible, right? These incredible meditation caves like they've never seen in the Himalayas, right? Phenomenal, yeah? We have all these conditions. At what time is it going to be better to practice? Can you imagine? Like we have healthy enough body and minds at this moment. Could you imagine all these factors coming together? It's un- mind-blowing, right? Mind-blowing how precious it is. So then you think, yeah, this is precious, but it's impermanent. We, d- we do not know how, man- how much longer all of these conditions will be here. We don't know, right? So we, we ponder this, how precious it is, This is impermanent. I better practice. The third one is karma, just cause and effect. This isn't esoteric. This isn't about reincarnation. This is about cause and effect. We could all see this on a daily basis. That we perform an action, there is a a result of that action. And we know this from neuroscience. The more you practice a certain habit, it creates a neural pathway and the easier it is for that to manifest. One happy thought is the foundation for another happy thought. One moment of anger is the very foundation for another moment of anger. This is just brain science, right? We know how precious it is. We know it's impermanent. So now what are we going to do with it? Well, we should do what leads to sustainable happiness. This is karma. So we look at our we look at what we're doing. Is this creating happiness now? And then the Buddha would say, Look, look, you say you want to do something. Is this creating happiness now? Or you say, Will this lead to happiness? Then when you're doing it, you're saying, Is it really making me happy? And then the Buddha said, After you're done, saying, Did it really bring me happiness? And then a year from now, look back. Did that actually bring me happiness? This is karma, to look deeply. And then the fourth thing goes back to refuge, which is dukkha, which is the basic unsatisfactory nature of all external existence. Not all existence, just if we look for it out there. right? So these things are basically unsatisfactory until we find inner peace. So that's the motivation. So we take refuge. And so in our daily prayers, you know, we could take refuge, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, know where we're going, and then we just contemplate these things just for a few moments. So we have motivation throughout the day. So when we get lost in complaining mind about something like Starbucks, there's a long line, and I can't <laughs> believe they didn't get my name right, and the Internet's really slow today. And, you know, we remember... What are we doing with this precious life? What's going on, yeah? So this would be the second thing, motivation. About that time, we get our first round of meditation. So in this tradition, it's called shamatha with object. Shamatha means concentration with object. You also hear this shamatha called in, in Tibetan, there's always a Sanskrit, and then there's the Tibetan word for it, and then there's the English. You know, so you usually hear three, three different definitions. So shamatha, Sanskrit, shine in Tibetan, which means calm abiding, which means concentration with object. So this would be the first round. This means meditate on your breath, for example. That's an object. Yeah. Along with that, usually comes a heart practice like tonglin, which is giving and receiving. And the four immeasurables of loving kindness, compassion, 
sympathetic joy, and equanimity. All right, so then, so we have this preciousness. We know we need to practice. And then you're given the meditation with object. So we're getting serious about our meditations, but the mind, crazy monkey mind all the time, right? Crazy, crazy mind. Usually we stop right here. This is one of the plateaus in practice, right? We know we want to practice. We know we should practice. But when we practice, it sucks. Like, we like everything <laughs> about meditation except the meditation part. <laughs> like, I like the clothes I get to wear. My altar looks cool and everything. And I like the people that I meet are really positive And they vote the same way I do. But the, the meditation part, not going so well. Right? Because I have to sit with myself. And myself right now, not too stoked on what I'm finding in the neighborhood of my mind. Right? And, and we're all like this. This is everyone's experience when we sit down and we begin to meditate. So in, in this tradition, this is Karma Kagyu tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. In Tibetan Buddhism, they have what they call the preliminaries and nunjo practices, but different schools have different things that they do. But in this school, they start to purify the mind. Prostration means purification in Tibetan, but it's also part of the refuge part of the preliminaries. So these are the things that purify our mind and set the foundation for us for insight how things truly are, insight to that essence of happiness within ourselves, that right now there's like a veil. Because when we look at now, we're not just, like I mentioned, we're not in that bliss. So we're like, well, shoot, I can't find it out there. And when I come in here, there's a lot of turmoil. So I'm really fighting with this because I can't really find it in there either, right? And so what you do, you start off with prostrations, and you usually do them a hundred, roughly 100,000 times. Mm-hmm. So it would be technically 111,000 times. Um, so you get in really good shape. You know? So this is one way to look at it. If, you, if you're on prostration protocol, you think, I'm going to get in really good shape, because you just do prostrations all day. You could tell the monks that are doing prostrations because they're just ripped, you know. Um, you could lose weight, all this other good stuff. But, but the prostrations are really about taking refuge. So as you do your prostrations, you are saying your refuge mantra. I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha by practicing generosity and the other perfections. May I attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. So you will say that a hundred thousand times as you do the physical prostrations a hundred thousand times. And then also, too, when you're doing the actual prostrations, you're purifying the body, the speech. And the mind. So in Tibetan, the head is the body because it contains our senses, the eyes and the ears. So, like our body, our senses. So, may I purify all the negativities of the body, all the impure actions of the body, all the ailments of the body, right? May I purify all the obscurations in my body. And then when you place your hands here, May I purify all the obscurations of speech. May all my negative karmas of speech, everything that I've said uh, unwisely, may that be purified. Right? And then the heart, and again, too, a lot in the East, when you say words the mind, they say here. Right? So this is the mind. May all purifications of mind. And this is all delusion that's separating myself in the veil of ignorance. So when we place our hands here, this is really, may I become enlightened of my own true essence. Right. And then we actually go down on the ground and then 
When you put your, your, your hands and your knees on the ground, you touch your forehead, this is uh, purifying the five poisons, attachment, inversion, um, jealousy, for the five, the five poisons. They're all um, purified as you are on your hands and knees and then you finish out your prostration and you put your hands over your head. So it's, it's, a, it's a purification practice. Now before that, you're asking for the, uh, the blessings of the whole lineage. So this ties you into um, the whole lineage tree, like in, in Tibetan Buddhism. So you're, you're praying for the guidance of the whole lineage as well. So this is the first aspect of, of cleansing the, the body-mind. And then the second piece is, is the mandala offering, which is gaining merit. Right? So again, these things you're probably not going to do, but just to recognize that they're done and we could do them in different ways. Right? So this, this purification and taking refuge. When we take refuge time and time again, like we take refuge in the TV, in Netflix, in, in whatever, in coffee, in the radio, in this. See, we take refuge all the time. Like we really seek um, release from our moment-to-moment suffering. And I use suffering very broadly. Like you're just uncomfortable in the car because you're stressed out about a meeting in the morning for work. And so instead of being with that, you hit the radio. You see, you're taking refuge in the radio. You know, so when you take refuge a hundred thousand times, it just, it starts to become, that's the habit, right? Oh, may I look this way for refuge, right? And then the second piece is, is merit building. So gaining merit. Um, in all religious traditions of all time, service is a huge piece of all traditions, right? Being of service to others. This is just foundational, right? And so the mandala practice is we visualize us offering everything to our teachers and all beings, right? And so we do that 100,000 times. And, and we're offering all the wisdom, all the compassion, um, all of ourselves to our teachers, and to all beings everywhere. So it's, it's this profound humility, too. Profound humility of like, like I, am, I am here for the sole purpose to give to others, right? And yourself is included, obviously, but to all beings, right? And that's, that's a theme throughout, all beings. When we do prostrations, I forgot about this part. When, you, when you're doing prostrations, you're visualizing... All beings are doing prostrations with you. So you're doing it, everyone, we're all doing it. And your friends, your family are all with you together. It's a big, elaborate visualization process. And most importantly, your enemies are right in front of you. And they get, they get the most intimate connection with your heart. And they get the most benefit because they're closest to the lineage in your visualization. So we need group prostrations, we're all doing it together. All, all beings, all the time. So the third one is more, more purification. This is the Vajrasattva practice. This is such an amazing practice. I mean, it's so, so beautiful. Vajrasattva is the deity of purification, and we visualize Vajrasattva at the crown of our head very elaborate visualization. And out of the toe of Vajrasattva, there's this divine elixir. So Vajrasattva becomes this being of light and holds within, within him this divine elixir of absolute truth and purity and health and healing. And you visualize, as you say, a 108-syllable a uh, hundred syllable mantra. Hundred, is it Vajrasattva? Hundred and eight, yeah? As you say the mantra, you visualize 
this light purifying body, speech, and mind. But every single cell of your being becomes filled with this light. It's really, really incredible. And then all of your obscurations leave the body. So you're visualizing this mind, that's crazy monkey mind. You're visualizing this mind clear, luminous. And you know, this is just a fantastic healing practice. If anyone's ever done like a body of light meditation, it's the same thing. You're just visualizing every cell of your body vibrating in absolute perfection on an emotional level, like your emotional body, your physical body, your spiritual body, your mental body. You go through all the aspects of self time and time again. And then you visualize that, that being kind of put out into the earth or the soil. So all that negativity that gets washed away into the soil. Absolutely amazing. Talk about a bliss practice. Really, really amazing bliss practice. That purifying. So then the last piece, no one's totally asleep yet. This is amazing. <laughs> I do. I said, man, this is going to be like a syllabus or something. It's going to be so boring. I told Christine when she came, I said, I don't know. It's going to be boring. But she came. Um, and I wish we had more time but anyway so the last piece is guru yoga and this is the connection um, with the lineage holders and um, I'll just read a little um, just read a saying on this this is one of the teachers talking about guru yoga the buddhas and the bodhisattvas are like the lamps that have already been lit To get lit, you need to make the connection. To touch wick to wick, mind to mind. The mind of devotion touches the mind of enlightenment through the guru. The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are the lamps that have already been lit. So it's like touching, like touching that. And I I think in the West, the idea of a guru is, I don't know, not so solid, maybe. <laughs> There's been a lot of false gurus out there, for one. And like I've said before, in Tibet, they just say, before you choose a teacher, you sit with him or her for 12 years first. <laughs> That's the discernment period. And then you see, after 12 years, which is a nice, good cycle, then you choose. And so you have to choose very, very wisely. And this is the importance of lineage. That's the importance of lineage is that when you have teachers that have been connected and you could already, you've already done discernment, let's say the Dalai Lama, let's say you said the Dalai Lama for 12 years and you've used your discernment and said, you know what, I think that guy's pretty solid. You know? <laughs> so the Dalai Lama says, you know what, my buddy here, Lama Zopa, I've been with him for 30 years, uh, he's a pretty good guy too. And you think, okay, I could probably trust, because I trust him, he's probably not going to, and I've seen all the other, his other crew that he's hung with, and, and they've been all checked out too. I could pretty much think this, this one too, he's okay, or she's okay. So this is a really important with lineage. Um, and it's just not for everybody. This is not for everybody. Um, and when we do these practices, when there's there's that there is a um, a methodology where there is a a transfer of what they call their mind stream where they could like those when those mind streams connect there's there is an empowerment there that could be transferred over um, not absolutely necessary but it's that's your path but what I think is necessary is devotion. And I think this is the part that has been schluffed off because in the West we're not so hip on the guru thing, is that we don't practice devotion. And this, is, this isn't right. I mean, this isn't... Um, it, because what you're being devoted to, again, and this is very explicit in the teaching, the, the guru is literally just a figurehead for your own enlightenment. 
And by taking a refuge, you're having, you're having that unbelievable devotion to your own self, to your own enlightened self. You know, it's like that Papaji quote that I wrote, read a couple, a couple weeks ago. He says, you know, in this space, which, when there's no object or you know, subject or object anymore, there's this beautiful space uh, of equanimity, and you have to fall in love with that. If you don't fall in love with that space within yourself, you're going to fall in love with something else. And so we fall in love with the guru because they're holding on the knowing. They hold on to our perfectness until we see it. Every time they point back to you, they're pointing back to you, your own enlightened self. And you hold devotion for them to do that for you because they can go off and just hang out in enlightenment. They don't need to do it. And that's been my personal experience. I've just been overcome with compassion and devotion when I think, when I, I don't know, I've had this realization one time, I was sitting with a teacher, and I realized he was fine. <laughs> and here he is touring around the world and just wearing himself out and, and all this. And he's fine. He doesn't, he's not doing it for the fame or fortune or business or whatever. He's just here for compassion, just because he's seen suffering beings like myself in front of him. And just have so much devotion for that, to hang on to that, and just keep pointing again and again. And so, and again, I've said this several times, like in Tibet, these lineages have turned out enlightened beings like an assembly line. Every single generation of Tibetan Buddhists, there's enlightened beings in it. Enlightenment is very, very rare, but not in that culture. It's not rare at all, right? Like right now, a handful of enlightened beings, and then, so we just look, okay, this is true. Not like that's the only path, but this is what they're doing to get there. So if we want to formulate or customize it or whatnot, we're just going through what, it, what they're doing, right? So these are the preliminary practices. And usually it takes people, they're doing this along with everything else. Usually it takes a long time. It takes like five or six years to do these. It lets you go into retreat and it takes about two to three months a piece, like all day. That's all you're doing. Getting ripped, doing prostrations, losing weight. Um, that would be a wrong motivation, but whatever it takes. Um, okay. So now we've done our purification. Now our mind's more stable. So now the second round of meditation. So we're all this time, meditation with object, right? So now the next round is we move into meditation without object. So we call this choiceless awareness or objectless shamatha, right? So more the Vipassana or Theravada style, they would say choiceless awareness. Well, you're just aware of awareness. Aware of what's arising. So this is more subtle, harder to teach, very experiential. But now it's getting a little one step closer to our true nature, right? So just easing into it. So now instead of focusing on the object, you're focusing on who or what is looking at the object, Right? That which, not what is known, but the knower. You start to go back into this. So just awareness. And about that time too, in this tradition, you start to move into the Vajrayana path. And this is where they start to bring in the deities. And this Vajra means diamond or thunderbolt. So this is like the diamond path, the diamond way. And so we see these deities. Here's a deity here. That's a wrathful deity, a dharma protector, and protecting the abundance. Sometimes they look very vicious, but they're very uh, kind. Uh, in this tradition, you're probably going to get the yidam, or the deity, of the Buddha of compassion, Chinrezig. And so 
in the generation stages, we just generate the, the visualization. And then uh, the Buddha of Compassion, Chinrezig or Avalokiteshvara, comes into you and rests all day in your heart. Right? And then in the more, in the, um, well, the final stage of your practice, um, if we could say such a thing, is actually you merge with the deity. So this takes the actual transmission in front of your teacher. It's called an empowerment. Um, and it usually means if you take that empowerment, that sadhana, that daily practice will be done. You take a vow, it'll be done every day for the rest of your life. And so it's not to be taken lightly. So now we have, in the meditation aspect, we have the four immeasurables. This is heart practices. We have Tonglin, another heart practice, compassion, loving kindness. So we're building our heart, and we have, um, now we're merging with the Buddha of compassion. So we do compassion sadhana. And really, this is just the compassionate aspect of our mind. This deity is not outside of ourselves. <coughs> we're already the Buddha of compassion. We haven't recognized it yet. We are Vajradhara, the Buddha of emptiness. We just haven't recognized it yet. So this is the second piece. Then the third piece, so this would be near the, the end of the path, would be after we have objectless shamatha, then the teacher will point out to you your true nature of mind, and that becomes your meditation object. And we did a little bit about that two weeks ago. We, I was referring to a book called Pointing Out the Dharmakaya. Yeah? Um, and we did a little bit of pointing to the mind's true nature. Right? So once we understand, oh, I'm not my thoughts, emotions, and body sensations, <laughs> I'm this. And we could, we could start meditating on that. And we could do what we call completion stage yoga, which we become deities too, and that we become the Buddha of compassion. Okay. That's a path. <laughs> oh, you guys are awesome for sitting through this stuff. <clears throat> like, I just wish, you know, at some point, I think we need to have a longer we need to have like day workshops and stuff, you know, because I, like a couple weeks ago too, I was talking about um, Dzogchen, you know, pointing out the Dharmakaya. So this is also called Dzogchen or Mahamudra would be, or Ati Yoga. And these, these are like the, the final pieces of the path when we're actually meditating on our true nature and we're taking refuge in our true nature moment to moment. And in those practices, it's a 24-hour practice. So you practice when you're awake, and then you practice dream yoga when you're asleep, and then you practice um, uh, poa practice. So this is um, how to leave the body during death. So there's a actual practice. Um, Minga Rinpoche, who went on a four-year wandering retreat, he got very sick and and how he was describing it. It was so nonchalant. He's like, yeah, the body was dying. So I just sat up and I was like, okay, I'm going to do my practice, my death practice, you know. <laughs> Get it all, you know. It's like so nonchalant, you know. Um, they do the POA practice. And you practice, you leave the body from uh, the crown of your head. And um, it's quite interesting So. For some reason, I, I've seen this more with nuns for some reason, but the nuns that are practicing POA, they, they actually, the hair on their head, they get a little bald spot there from that, from that practice. But, um, so maybe let's just, I'm just going to end with a little meditation before I open it up to some questions. So I will say, you know, I am going to send out this outline and I probably didn't remember much of that. Um, but I will send that out in the newsletter and um, a link on Facebook. But what I want to really feel into right now is your sadhana, your path. 
we talked about plotting the course, like where are you going, like why are you here, and maybe it's not for enlightenment, that's okay, maybe you're here because you're stressed out, or your body's hurting. So first just take a look at like, what does spiritual path mean to you, and it's all valid. Why do you want to practice? And secondly, what are some motivations for you to practice? We talked about precious life, impermanence, cause and effect, and the unpredictability of life. What's motivating for you? And then the next piece, we talked about purification and merit building. What purifies your mind? Maybe it's exercise. Maybe it's hobbies or nature. It makes you feel good. So when you meditate, your mind's a little bit more settled. What about service? How does service or the opportunity for service arise in your life?
And then look at the two aspects of meditation. The heart practice and the concentration or mindfulness practice. Just see which one resonates most with you. If you have a practice now, what type of heart-opening practices do you enjoy? practices most help with your stability of mind, focusing on the breath or a mantra or what is it for you? I think just in closing, before I open it up for some questions, is that, again, it's, it's not important, definitely not important that you do this. It's important that you know what you're doing. It's like um, that you have some solid ground to know where you're at. When you sit down, you should know what meditation you're doing. But in your life, you should know, what am I doing with my spiritual practice? Because not just grabbing from here or there, that, that it makes sense, that there's some continuity to it. Because even though this is a goalless path, there's, there's signposts along the way. It's quantifiable within ourselves. We can quantify and see how our practice is evolving Yet if we don't have a routine or a methodology, then we're just kind of all over the place. And we could be all over the place for decades. <laughs> just grabbing from everywhere and all this stuff, yeah? Which is great for a time until we have that discernment. And then we just have to choose. And, you know, we're available. Um, well, I'll speak for myself because Wendy's not here. Um, Check in with us. Email us. Well, email me, Casey at InsideLA.org. You know, if you have questions on where your practice is, what should I be doing? This is what you know. My teacher always told me to bug my teachers. Mm-hmm. I always ask her, "How did you get so close to all these amazing lamas that travel all around the world and never stay put?" She says, "I bug the hell out of them all the time. <laughs> I wrote them letters." all the time. I was friends with their attendants and I'd write them letters all the time. When they'd come, I'd bug them for a private interview. And and that's how she got her path really straight and uh, very true. So, Yeah, any questions or comments? Yeah. Um, thank you. It feels like a lot of what you said today feels like I've heard for the first time. Mm. So there's a lot of information. But I'm assuming that it's not necessarily sequential. I'm, I'm asking if that's the truth. If, if the path sort of comes, that it doesn't come first, second, third, fourth. Do you know what I mean? That it's... Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, It isn't. Uh, Most of it. Like with the meditation, kind of, yeah. Mm -hmm. The meditation piece that we talked about, um, more so. Like object without object, that kind of a thing. But yeah, and it's really not, but... And then the Nundro, they call it preliminaries for the basics, but you could do them all the way to enlightenment. You get prostration all the way to enlightenment. Um, but for the sake of discussion, I wanted to do it more chronological like that because I think that's one aspect where we can't get our 
brain around like where it goes where. Yeah. I know. Yeah. But good, good question. Yeah. Yeah. Casey, I wanted to ask a, for some clarification about the deities. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the Tibetan school, if I understand correctly from what you were talking about, the deities are unrealized aspects of our own Buddha nature. Is that am I putting that correctly? Um, unrealized aspects. Yeah, like what they mean for us. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So are they initially sort of pointers that ultimately are really ourselves? I mean, we're, we're sort of pointing at something, but we're really pointing at ourselves? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so we take the, this enlightened mind with all its different aspects, and then we zero in on the aspect. A lot of times you'll take one that you need to cultivate. You know, if you need to cultivate more compassion, it's really great to do that, that sadhana, right? Um, or... Vajra Yogini is a transmute, uh, transmutes desire. So if you have a lot of desire, so but the desireless state, when we're content and just free from desire, is an aspect of ourselves. So you might want to take on that quality. Yeah. So it's just kind of a clearly defined aspect, right. which in them, just like us, all aspects are present. Right. And thanks for talking about that. It was very helpful. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Um, you asked about our spiritual path and why we're here, and I'm thinking about some of these questions, and uh, I'm a Virgo slash recovering perfectionist, so (laughs) one of my highest intentions, of course, is enlightenment, Um, but I was thinking also just other motivations, and today in particular, I'm feeling very grateful uh, to be here and for the community, and... um, you spoke about the preciousness of life, the impermanence of it all, and uh, I'm going to visit a friend later today, and uh, she's been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, colon cancer may have spread to her liver and lungs, so she's still getting some tests, and uh, she's been a mother figure in some ways for me. And my mom passed away uh, of that same illness, so it's, it's a a lot of emotions coming up and mm-hmm. um, yeah so a lot of what you shared was just uh, today in particular really um, important and just confronting death is mm-hmm. you know one of the greatest reminders of, mm-hmm. of all of that so mm-hmm. thank you for all being here thank you mm-hmm. I'm going to send her lots of lots of meta and her and her family lots of love thank you You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.